Good morning. Today's reading is from Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 11, from the Amplified Version. There is a season for everything and a time for every delight and event or purpose under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw away stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to keep silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What profit is there for the worker from that in which he labors? I have seen the task which God has given to the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything beautiful and appropriate in its time. He has also planted eternity, a sense of divine purpose, in the human heart, a mysterious longing which nothing under the sun can satisfy except God. Morning, everybody. Great to see you. We have a song. I'm going to play for you. If anybody knows who, uh, what band is singing this song, let's roll it there. Anybody know? Oh, wow, man, that was quick. That was quick. Uh, so what's the name of the song? Turn, turn, turn. And the lyrics, what are they verbatim from? Exactly what Morgan just read. Everything turns, 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 right? Right from the book of Ecclesiastes. Even the birds are excited about the book of Ecclesiastes, which is awesome because it's an awesome book. All right, let's kill the birds. And let's move on. A very important passage was just read by Morgan. What we're getting here is we're getting these pictures, 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 pictures of all these things that are going on in life. And they're polar opposites. Time to be born and a time to die, right? A time to gather, a time to throw away. You're getting these pictures. And the reason you're getting these polar opposite pictures is what do you do in between? Like, what do you do in between these two things? What are your priorities going to be in between the birth and the death? Because you're either going to find meaning or meaninglessness. And this is what Ecclesiastes is so much about. We try to, we think, we live underneath this illusion of controlling things. Does anybody know? It's not you. It's not you. But does anybody know a controlling person? Everybody met, met somebody who's got a control issues? It's not you. And it's not the person you're sitting next to. There's a, there's a Bible scholar that I've been reading in preparation for this series. This is what he says about control. He says, the God of order, right? He orders all these things, time to be born, time to die, right? All these things, right? The God of order, therefore, brings chaos to life so as to remind us that we are not, in fact, gods who control the present or the future. We, we want to be, but we can't, right? None of us here in this room controlled our conception, did we? I know that's a little much to think about, but like, we didn't dictate. All right, now I will be conceived. Somebody else was controlling that. The thing is, is what are we going to do in between these polar extremes? And what we've been talking about is the importance of figuring out our priorities in the midst of these polar opposites. What will your priorities be? Will you prioritize the permanent or you prioritize something that's momentary? And if you prioritize something that's momentary, you're standing on something that is meaningless. 
because it's all going to go away. What's really cool uh, this morning is Jesus gives us this story, has so much to do with this Ecclesiastes passage of all these different seasons we go through. Gives us a story that lets us know that many of us here this morning in this room are on the verge of spiritual breakthrough in our life. Like that thing deep inside of us that all of us really desire to live that. You know, isn't there something inside of all this? There's got to be more. I know there's more. Even spiritually speaking, there feels like there must be more. Jesus speaks to that and says, yes, there is. And there's something simple. It's going to keep coming after us, but it's something simple that all of us can do today. And if we do, we're on the verge of a spiritual breakthrough, spiritual abundance in our life. This is what I want to talk about uh, this morning. So Ecclesiastes gives us all these pictures, pictures that we just read a few moments ago, of these polar opposites, but also these pictures of this guy who's saying, you know, I tried this, I built this, I owned this, and all ended up meaningless. This morning, I want to talk about our calendars and how busy our calendars are. And I have to talk about our possessions. You might say, well, John, why are we going to talk about possessions if we're talking about calendars? Because there's the thing, right? The more you own, the more the stuff owns you. Isn't that true? The more stuff we own, the more that our stuff that we own owns us because we've got to spend a lot of time with it. We've got to move it around. We've got to clean it. We've got to manage it. We've got to maintain it. So today we're going after our calendars. It's going to involve our busy schedules and also the, the abundance of things that we actually own. All right. Jesus talks about soils. We have a picture of something here. Anybody know what this is? It's an acorn. I have one in my pocket so small you probably can't see it. Right? little tiny acorn. You know what's fascinating is Jesus tells us this story. Actually, it's repeated three times in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And you've got, you know, you got to wonder... Why would the Bible, I know you've thought this before, I've had people ask me, I think it to myself, too. Why, is the Bible, why repeat it three times? I mean, just, just tell us once, it's written down, I can read it again and again, why are you repeating it three times? Either God is having memory issues, okay, or it's like really important, you know? So if somebody wants to tell you something and they're really important, they might repeat themselves you know, like numerous times. Like for instance, if I want to tell you the Redskins are now four in a, in a row, right? They've won four games in a row. You know what I mean? It might be really important. Maybe God wants you to know that. We beat the Giants. I remember we beat the Giants. We beat the Browns. We beat the Ravens. That was beautiful. And then, you know, last week we beat the Eagles. And the Eagles Eagles actually crushed the Pittsburgh Steelers. Anybody see that game? Crushed them. And Pittsburgh's a really good team. So since... Since the Redskins beat the Eagles who beat the Steelers, what does that say about the Redskins? And I think what... I think what God is saying is he's very happy with what's what's going on. And we're all looking forward to Thanksgiving Day when we play the Cowboys and we crush the Cowboys. It's going to be a great Thanksgiving. A great Thanksgiving, right? Okay. All right. So why? Because really important. Here's the thing. Let's think about this. He is describing to us four different types of soil. And he says there's one type of soil that the seed goes down into and there's this abundance. He says the seed is the kingdom. Maybe you'll say, you know what, I've tried Jesus or I'm trying Jesus or I've been around church for a long time. Man, it's just not. There's something more. It's not working, man. Why am I stuck? There's got to be more to this. Some people actually try it and they're like, this isn't working. I'm, 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 I'm leaving. I'm just, I'm, I'm done. I'm not going to give this a shot anymore. And what Jesus says is there isn't anything wrong with the seed. Right? The soil is the problem. Because you, think about this. 
All the potential in the world is inside of this seed to cover our entire planet with wood. Right here. There you go. This little tiny seed can cover our entire planet with wood as long as the soil is right. Right? All the potential is in there. All the potential is in the kingdom, the story of Jesus Christ, to have an abundant impact on our lives, to change our lives. And then he, then he gives us three things that stand in the way. We're going to focus on one because I think one of them is incredibly relevant to Washingtonians. Right? That's what our focus is going to be this morning. All right, here's what he says. One of the soils, Mark chapter 4. The seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word, but all too quickly, the message is crowded out by the worries of life. In other words, interpretation, their calendars are just way too busy. Their calendars are so crowded with all the stuff of life, good stuff, bad stuff, whatever, doesn't matter. There's just a lot of stuff going on, and it's standing in the way of this supernatural abundance of God's will being done in their life. The lure of wealth and the desire for things, other things, and so no fruit is produced. So a, so a packed calendar and a packed house full of stuff. Can you imagine that? Is this, it's crazy. I'm, I'm looking for something much deeper spiritually. Hey, give me something deeper than that, Jesus. Are you telling me because I'm so busy and I own so much and all my stuff owns me and I'm running around frantically that that's keeping me from this explosion of God's will being done in my life? This is what Jesus says which is really relevant to us Washingtonians. I said this a few weeks ago, Arlington County, hardest working city in the United States of America. How is that measured? Because we work longer in this city than any other city in the United States of America. We're busy, busy, busy. Aren't we busy? Do you know anybody that's not busy? I mean, somewhere in their city, there's a five-year-old kid that's not busy. He's very bored. <laughs> Last week, we did our volunteer fair. And it's funny, this happens with a lot of people. Well, I'll talk to people and I'm like, you know, I would like to, you know, I'd like to volunteer, but I'm just so busy. And I'm like, oh my gosh, are you serious? You're the one busy person that I know. None of our other volunteers are busy, right? Everybody is, but I heard about you. I heard you're the busy Washingtonian. So here's the thing. We're all busy. We're crazy busy. We're crazy, 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 crazy busy. And here's the problem with being crazy busy. Here's the problem with packed houses and packed calendars. They are keeping us from what your soul is really craving. There's the problem. And you know what the good news is? There's something that all of us can do about that. There is. There's something every single one. I love going on mission trips. Go on mission trips. We go to an area of the world that doesn't really uh, have that much. And most of the time, people come back and say, you know what? Oh, man, I just love that. I wish I could have what they have. My, 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 my response to that is always the same. You can. <laughs> you can. There's an adjustment that needs to be made. It's very, very difficult to make. But you can. The answer is actually very very simple. And this is what Jesus is talking about. Can you imagine this, that a packed house and a packed calendar can keep you from what your soul is really craving? God's plan for your life to be fully realized. This is what Jesus is talking about here. Corey Tinboon, who was a Holocaust survivor, said this. She said, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. If the devil can't make you bad, he will make you busy, busy. It keeps us from all that God wants for us in our lives. There is more to this life, and it starts with less. There is more to this life, and it starts with less. Here's what Socrates says. Socrates says, He who is contented with what he has would not be contented with what he would like 
to have. I want to get you all excited about minimalism this morning, okay? Anybody ever heard about minimalism? I want you to get you very excited about minimalism. Jesus definitely is a minimalist. Is there a problem with having things? No. Is there a problem with having nice things? No. The problem is, is when we have too much things. Like you came here this morning, you didn't realize that we're going to take the coat right off your back, right? You didn't realize that. We think you have too many coats. We're going to alleviate you of your burden. We're going to unburden your life. And unburdening our lives begins with doing less. See, more starts with doing less in our life. Let me give you a couple quotes about minimalism. Josh Becker, who wrote a book about it, says this. Minimalism is the intentional promotion of the things we most value and the removal of anything that distracts us from them. Man, that is so the book of Ecclesiastes. He goes on. The goal of minimalism is to unburden our lives so we can accomplish what? What does it say? More. Inside of your souls... You have this deep sense that there's more to life. And what Jesus says is, you're right, there is. And it begins with less. Doing less and owning less so that less stuff owns you. Do you realize that you have a $170 billion target on your back? A $170 billion target on your back. That's how much the marketing industry spends every single year trying to get you to do more and to own more to stir that craving up inside of you that you've got to add to your calendar, right? And that you've got to add to all the stuff in your house. There's already 300,000 300, items in the average American home, but you need more. The craving for more is a $170 billion target on our back for more. They're very well-funded, obviously, and very well-researched. They know how your brain works. You think, oh, no, it's not going to affect me. You think it's not affecting you? It is. Store samples. You walk through Costco, right? Everybody like the store? Anybody? Eats the store? I can have, have a whole dinner. I go in there and just, boo. They're not going to get me. I'm just going to enjoy it. I'm not going to buy this item, right? Here's what they know. Here's what they know. When you eat that store sample in the store, they know this. It triggers your brain to start searching for food. And though you might not buy that particular sample, what they know this is a fact. 40% of the people who eat the sample, 40% walk out of the store buying something they never planned to buy. Because it triggers your brain and says, search, 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 get more, do more. So it's, you think they're giving you the sample because they love you. <laughs> they don't love you. <laughs> Freudian psychoanalyst, right? This guy who, who consulted to the marketing industry in a big way in the early 1900s says this, the needs and wants of people have to be continuously stirred up. So they stir it up. Everybody, we live in a day and age that's incredible. You can have almost every item imaginable on your doorstep in 24 hours. True? Amazon's doing the same day thing now. You can order something. It'll be on your doorstep like in an hour sometimes. It's amazing. And you know where you can initiate all that buying from? You know, where do you initiate it from? Laying right in your bed. You pay bills. You shop. You do business calls. You do business texts and emails all right in your bed. You also think that the, your bed was for some other reason, right? But your bed is now a place of business. It used to be a place of business, but now it's a place of business. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. We do all this business right there, laying in bed. We're initiating all these things right in their bed. We watch TV. We binge on Netflix. I know nobody does this, but you have friends that binge on Netflix <laughs> laying, in, laying in their bed. According to Nielsen... The average American watches four hours of TV every day. 
28 hours every week, two months of TV watching every year. And if you live to be the age of 65, you know how much time you'll dedicate to TV? Nine years of your life. Nine years of your life. Binge watching or watching the news, whatever. See, more starts with less. Unless we get control of our possessions and our calendars, our possessions and our calendars will own us and control us, and they keep us. Here's the biggest point. They keep us from all that God wants to do in and through your life. There is more. You have a sense there is, and there is. Jesus is saying, yes, there is. But we've got to begin to clear away all that clutter in our life, and we've got to prioritize the permanent. This is what we want to focus on in a big way today. Ecclesiastes 4.6 says it so well. It is better to be satisfied with a few things. Better to be satisfied with a few things that you have than to always be struggling to get more. Morgan read it a minute ago. There's a time to throw away. I want to encourage you this morning. There is a time to throw away. You need to throw away things on your calendar and throw away things in your house because it's actually keeping you from what God wants to do in your lives. I want to take a quick trip through generations, and I can for just, just, just this moment, to talk about how we deal with consumerism and possessions and kind of where, how, where we are today in the world. So, first of all, the silent generation. Anybody know who the silent generation roughly are? Silent? Anybody? Nobody knew in the first service? You don't either? Okay. Pre-war. Pre-World War II. Pre-World War II. Why are they called the silent generation? Anybody know? Wh- where did that term come from? Why silent? So Time Magazine piece on that generation and said that this generation is unimaginative, they're cautious, and they're withdrawn. They are the silent generation. That title from Time Magazine stuck, and it's been with us to this very day. Right? So people were like, during that time, right, they were hunting communists, and so you were very afraid about sharing with people your beliefs or where you're going, what you're doing, because you could get arrested. There was a, something going on in this country caused people to be very silent, very cautious about their lives. They lived through what? The great... Yes. So, so many of the basic things of life were not there. So there's a real like, scarcity the Dust Bowls of the 1930s when food. So food and the basics of life, which kind of the same thing, right? There was this feel, oh, man, I got I to gotta protect that. I got to hoard that. I got to build that up. This is the silent generation. All right, who were their children? Oh, the other thing. Do you realize in the Great Depression there was 24% unemployment? Their children were who? What? Boomers, the boomers. This is after World War II. So there was a boom. There was a boom in births. Lots of birth going on. And there was a boom in our economy. Uh, And people began to move to the suburbs. Do you realize that Washington, D.C., up until World War II, was a tiny, sleepy little town? There wasn't a whole lot going on in this town. But after World War II, this city just began to explode, explode population-wise. People moved out of D.C. and they began to move into Arlington, Virginia. And all these little houses, we look at them now, we say they're little, but back in those days they were huge. The average American home has tripled in size since World War II. So growing, 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 right? You can get one of these houses for ten, fifteen thousand $15,000. Can you imagine that? You should have bought a 1,000 of them back in then, right? So, <laughs> Cowboys fan. They do that kind of stuff. Cowboys fan. Okay. Uh, so there was, this, there was this explosion as far as birth, Baby boomers, right? Boom, all this birth, and money. So, so uh, the parents, 
began to work. Baby boomer parents, as they got older, dual income. That hadn't happened before. And because of the dual income, there was a large amount of discretionary income, right? So they had more money. They had discretionary wealth to do with it. And what, what, what they had was is a lot of money because both were working, but what did they not have? They didn't have time or energy for their children. And their children are called what generation? The latchkey latchkey generation. So you have the boomers making lots of money and they love their children by giving them possessions, but they don't have time or energy for, for their children. Their children are the latchkey, latchkey generation. What is the latchkey Gen X? What kind of parents do they become? Helicopter parents. Exactly. So the boomers don't have time for them and now Gen X says, okay, we're going to be the helicopter parents and our kids are going to be really, really special. We're going to make sure that our millennial kids, we, they know how special. Just think about it. No, think about this. Think about this. I want you to think about the way a boomer mom and a Gen X mom come home with the hospital with their baby, okay? Let's do the Gen X mom first. She's wheeled out in a wheelchair with a whole team of nurses around her. She's wheeled out of the hospital to an armored vehicle, okay? <laughs> Where a rear-facing car seat, right, is awaiting the child, and that car seat is carefully inspected because, and I can tell you for a fact, if it's not the right car seat, the nurses will not let you leave in the armored vehicle, right? Because that kid is special, Let's talk about a boomer mom. How's a boomer mom leave, leave the hospital with their, with their child, with, with their latchkey kid, right? How they, they come walking out, right? Want, and, and walking out, no team of nurses, no, no wheelchair. They come walking out, baby in one arm, smoking a cigarette in the other. <laughs> they hop in the front seat of a car that doesn't even have seat belts. All right. Both of the generations looked at their kids as special, right? The Gen X say to their, to their millennial kids, you're so special. Like you got 10th place, but here's a big ribbon for 10th, right? We do, you're so special. I want you to know you're special. Well, the boomers say the same thing about their kids. Special? You think you're special? Who do you think you are, right? Look at the two differences. The two differences there. It's amazing. Now, here comes the millennials. Who do they have as parents and grandparents? They've got <laughs> Google, Google parents. Oh, so, so what they have is they've got boomer grandparents who show their love by possessions, by giving gifts, consumerism, because the boomers took consumerism to a level that we've never seen before. Okay, just a fact. Okay, and now their parents are helicopter parents. So here comes the millennials. What are, how are they going to process all of this? All right. M millennials are really into collaboration. Right? They're in to shared experience. What's a millennial's office? A millennial's office is a coffee shop. Millennials aren't into ownership. They're into access. They actually are okay with owning less. We just want to have access to something, right? So millennials share bicycles, bike share. They share cars, zip cars. They share houses. They share couches. We had a millennial in this church who couch surfed for two years of their life, right? Okay? So there's real sharing there. They're very much into collaboration. Ownership has been replaced by access. They are, ready for this, the most environmentally conscious generation in the history of our world, and it's driving their buying habits. Let me last thing I want to say about millennials. Millennials are perfectly positioned to lead us into a spiritual revolution. 
Millennials are perfectly positioned to lead all of us in a spiritual revolution according to the words of Jesus Christ. So way to go, millennials. Lead us. Lead us home. That was kind of weak, so and I guess not many of you are millennials here. So we need so let me close this thing down by saying this. We have there is more. Jesus is saying there is more, and it starts with less. But the problem is, for so many people, like, hey man, John, I man, I tried Jesus, didn't work, or I'm trying Jesus not work. Well, it's nothing, there's nothing wrong, right? There's nothing wrong with Jesus, nothing wrong with the seed. It has all the potential to have a huge impact on our lives. It's all about the soil. And what Jesus is saying is the soil is cluttered. The house is filled with stuff. The counter is filled with stuff. And my spirit, as powerful as it is, can't break through all that distraction. So we got to get serious. And when you get serious about something, you put pen to paper. When you get serious about something, you make a plan. So I have three things I want to consider this morning to make this stick. Number one, you need a plan. We've been talking and talking and talking about this. And I am, until we're done next week with Ecclesiastes, I'm not coming off this thing because it actually works. It works, it works. All the data backs it up. Jesus backs it up. Bible backs it up. It's clear. 17-cent notebook. You and a plan. Harvard, Yale say you're 10 times more effective if you write your plan down. Write your plan. I want to save you time right now. Anybody need more time in your day? I want to save you time. Anybody? Anybody? Busy? And busy? 10 of you are busy. Here's for you 10 people. <laughs> You 10 people, I want to save you time in your day. Every one minute you, you, you spend in planning saves you 10 minutes in execution. Every one minute, according to studies, that you spend in planning saves you 10 minutes in execution. I've just saved you 10 minutes of your life. That's what the studies show. You're welcome. <laughs> when you write up a list, when you make a list, like here's the thing, Here, here's what you want to do. The night before you go to bed, you make a list of what you're going to do the next day. And that list that you've written is like you painting a picture. And that picture shows you your priorities. Now you can look at it and say, okay, I've made this list. What I'm going to do next day, what I'm going to do this week, what I'm going to do in my life. I'm going to write it down in the notebook. Here it is. Now I can go through it and say, okay, there's my priorities. That's what I'm really all about because I've actually taken the time to put it back. Other words, oh, whatever, I'll figure it out. No, 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 no. You write it down and you say, okay, there's my true priorities because we want to prioritize what? The permanent. We want to stand on the permanent. And when you write a list, it's like you're painting a picture of what your true priorities are. And now that you know your priorities, you can begin to purge. Point number two, you've got to begin to purge. Once you've written the list, you've painted the picture, now you can begin to purge stuff. You all have heard of the 80-20 rule, right? Everybody's heard of the 80-20 rule? Here's the reality for us. Uh, You wear 20% of your clothing 80% of the time. You use 20% of your stuff 80% of the time. I don't know what you're doing with the other 80%, just like me. But that's what the reality is. If you'll make a list, you'll realize that 20% of the items on your list will move you 80% down the field because you've identified your priorities. Is this making sense? That's why you want the list. And you want to analyze the list and look at it and say, you know what, if I'll focus on the primary things, the, the, the things that are permanent, the big stuff, It'll push me down towards the, towards the goal where I want to be, right? So I said it before. The average American home has 300,000 items in it, 300,000. So min- minimalists are beginning to look at that. You got one guy who Newsweek did an article on. He says, you know what? That's it, man. I'm going to go down to 100 items. So he like purged. He figured out his priorities. He purged everything. There are people living in homes with less than 150 square feet. Now, I'm not doing that, but... <laughs> 
I don't practice any of this stuff. I just talk about it, right? <laughs> but people who are beginning, people who are beginning what Jesus Christ talked about and removing stuff out of the way, saying, you know what, I'm finding more energy, more purpose, more passion, more connection with God and each other. Think about that. It's powerful. I want to encourage you to begin to plan, one, two, purge. Last one, practice. Plan, purge, practice. What does practice mean? Practice makes what? Practice makes? Perfect too. Practice makes permanent. Practice makes perfect practice. This is why Jesus gives us all these stories. He says, okay, I want you to think over and over in your head. Number one catalyst for spiritual growth is somebody reading their Bible by far. By far. Why? Because you're meditating on the message of the Scripture. You're meditating many times on stories that Jesus Christ paints for us of soils. And you're thinking it. You're thinking it over. You're seeing it. You're practicing it. As you begin to practice, as you begin to practice what the plan that you've put into place, it's going to help you to stick with the plan. When people go for a job interview, it's the people who see the job interview in their mind, they practice the scenario over and over again, they do better in the job interview. It's people who make a plan, paint a picture, and say, you know what, when I walk into this store, here's my plan, there's a much better chance they're going to stick to the plan than those who never wrote it up before and never practice it over and over and over again in their mind. Does that make sense? So you got to practice. you got to come up with a plan, and you have to practice it over and over. Jesus, Jesus Christ, that's why he gives us all these mental pictures. He says, the kingdom of God, my will being done in your life, is like a seed. He says, it's like a pearl. This is like a party because he wants us to practice it over and over again in our minds. So we have a, a, a book here I want to show you, Smarter, Faster, Better by Charles Duhigg. He, um, he did a, a study about why are certain people more effective in their jobs than other people? And the results were absolutely fascinating. They took NICU nurses and they tried to figure out why, why do we have a NICU nurse who has the same credentials as this nurse over here, and yet there's this nurse here with the same credentials over here doesn't, isn't able to pick it out when a child is severely ill, right? So they analyzed these two nurses. And what they realized is the nurse that was able to pick out what was wrong the vital signs in the kids were the same. One nurse walked by and said, vital signs are cool. This nurse walked by and said, you know what? The vital signs are cool, but there's a problem with this baby. They said, why do you think that? They said, because I have a mental picture in my mind of what a healthy baby looks like. I know the vital signs, everything is cool, but I have a mental picture in my mind of what a healthy baby looks like. Healthy pictures in your, pictures in your mind of how you want to spend time with your family or your friends or go on a job interview or the picture of how you want to spend the next day, what your priorities are when you wake up in the morning, when you get to your desk, how you navigate your day. If you'll practice it, you will stand a much better chance of sticking to it. All right, last thought. Uh, about four, five, six years ago, an Air France flight uh, left out of uh, Brazil. And in the middle of the Atlantic, they had a minor problem, a really minor basic problem, and they crashed and everybody died. And they tried to figure out what in the world happened with that. One year later, uh, same airplane, different airlines, Qantas, Qantas Flight 32. This guy was captain. Let's show the guy that was captain. His name is Richard DeCrepney. They say he's a cross between General Patton and Crocodile Dundee. That's what they said about this guy. Right? Uh, so the Air France flight had a very minor, very, very simple issue. <coughs> Everybody died. 440 passengers on Qantas Flight 32. Uh, they had what is called one of the 
uh, worst mid-air disasters in the history of aviation, and he lands the plane successfully, and they wanted to know why. There was an oil fire that was completely uncontained in the left jet. It shattered the left jet. It shattered the left wing. There were holes in the left wing that you could fit your body through. How in the world did they survive it? So they began to analyze this guy. You know what he did? He did the same thing every time when he went from the hotel to the airport with his entire crew. He said to them, look, I want you all to imagine some catastrophe, like an engine fire. Think about it. What do you do when the engine is on fire? Then he got very specific, just like the plan I want you to write. The plan needs to be specific about your life. If you really want the Holy Spirit to break out in your life big time and God's will to be done. Very specific. He says, okay, it's on fire. Where do your eyes go? I want to know where your eyes are. Where are your hands going? What are you doing? What are you saying? How are you speaking? Because when it all busted loose on that flight and they should have crashed and everybody died, what was happening in the cockpit? Calm, measured, calculated conversation. It was clear. Why? Because they practiced. They practice. They practice. And if you want to be successful and you want to clear all the clutter out of your life, I'm telling you now, you're going to be just like me. 95% of us are going to be exactly the same. We're not going to clear anything out of our life. We're going to walk out of this room and do anything. But if we really want to see an explosion of the Spirit at work in our lives, we have to get very strategic and begin to write that plan down, paint that picture. What are your priorities? Purge everything else. Practice, 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 practice. We're going to sing a song about the Holy Spirit. Before we do, Doug's going to come out. He's going to help me. Got something for you right before we end. Everybody say, hey, Doug. Hey, Doug. Anybody like golf? Anybody like golf? Okay, I hate golf. Uh, absolutely hate it. Don't, you're all right. I'm not going to hit you. We've golfed before, so he knows what the deal is. Okay, here's the thing about me and golf. Here's why I hate golf, because I'm terrible at golf. Am I, am I terrible at golf? Yes. Yes. <laughs> very bad at golf. You know, I swing that thing, and here's what's so frustrating. I'll swing that, I'll give it, and like, you know how humiliating that is? And then I'll just really, wham, wham, and then hard as it, and like, that's frustrating. You're out there with a bunch of guys, and a three-year-old could hit the ball farther right? It's so frustrating. It's like our lives. We're, so we say, you know what? I'm going to try harder. And I'm trying harder. And I'm trying harder. And I'm trying harder. You're doing good, Pandela. Harder. And it's just like this over and over and over. I'm getting nowhere. I'm getting nowhere. It's so frustrating. Doug, did you or did you not say on the 17th tee box at Reston National that you can't understand how somebody who is so terrible at golf would continue to play and how humiliating it must be? Did you did you not say that about me? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I want to establish something with you. I hate golf. I'm terrible at golf. I try very hard. And it's so frustrating when I hit the ball five feet. Now, I couldn't play golf for a year and a half. Bad back. This guy prayed for me for a year and a half. And I got to say, God's answering prayer. Uh, my back hasn't felt this good in 20 years. This guy is praying like crazy. Got a bunch of people to pray for me. Man, my back is great. So we played to celebrate that. We played golf for the first time after a year and a half. Was I a better golfer the first day we played after a year and a half, yes or no? Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know what I did for the year and a half? Here's crazy. I didn't even know this study. For a year and a half, I would lay in the bed after I paid all the bills <laughs> and did all the Amazon shopping was done and responded to all the emails.
I'd lay there and I would think about my terrible golf swing over and over. I practiced it in my head over and I saw that terrible swing. And then I thought about what a decent swing looks like and I just kept playing it and that tape just played. And finally I realized, oh my gosh, there's some, there's some changes. And I began to see it. I began to visualize it like the soil that has the abundance. And I saw this good thing happening. I saw it. I saw the good swing. First hole, first hole after a year and a half, not playing, terrible golfer, did I par it yes or no? Yes. Yes. We played nine holes. Did I par at least half of those holes? Yes. Was it incredible? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. It was incredible. Here's what I want to challenge you with, everybody. I want to challenge you to make a true change in your life. To actually put pen to paper, paint the picture, figure out your priorities, and then practice it. See the picture over and over and over and over every day to make true change. Okay? Can we do that? Some of us are on the verge of a mighty thing happening in our lives. Uh, Let me close with saying this. Doug and I are going to be over here against the prayer wall. We'd love to pray with anybody. After the service is over, we're going to stand. We're going to sing about the Holy Spirit moving and working in our lives. We're going to believe that's going to be. We're going to sing it like a prayer this morning. Can we do that? Because some of us are on the verge of something special. All right, let's, let's all stand and I'll say a prayer and we'll close. If you're a guest and this is, this is your first time here, you've never been to Grace in Five, I'd love to meet you right over there where Heather is holding that sign up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much, God. I thank you for your word. Jesus, I thank you that you tell us that we can be on the verge of an outbreak of your spirit and your will in our lives, God. Help us to do the simple but necessary and difficult things to see that happen for the glory of your kingdom. In Christ's name, everybody said amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.